0: And uh, we are kind of, you've noticed if you've been a part of the teaching for a while, we've kind of camped in these first five verses because there's just a whole lot to discuss here. And we are going to continue today in Philippians 2, 1 through 5. And we're going to continue with this, this theme that we've been talking about, which is what a life defined by humility and selflessness looks like. You know, we get this whole first chapter in Philippians that talks about joy how we have it in all circumstances or, or can have it in all circumstances, because joy is not an internal attitude; it is something that Jesus literally puts into our lives when we become followers of him, so joy we say is not it 's not an emotion it 's actually it 's an unassailable posture of the heart, and there 's this great lengthy teaching on joy and paul 's life serves as a great example of having joy in circumstances that are very difficult and then immediately following this, in chapter two, Paul begins to lay out for us this. This reality of what, a, what an, another facet, if you will, of a joyful life in Jesus looks like. And it all comes down to this idea of loving others, caring about others, valuing the needs of others as much and at times even more than, than ourselves. And so this is one of the things we as believers should be finding joy in. It's not just emotional, spiritual, and phil- physical stability, although that's important. Um, it's also in the fact that we are put on earth to be a cosmic blessing to others. We should have joy in that. So today we continue to press into this truth by examining how you can know if you are living like Jesus in this area of your life. And Philippians 2, 1-5 is this practical treatise that Paul gives us before he literally just gives us bullet point after bullet point of who Jesus is. In other words, he says, be this, and then he says, and here's why you can be this, look at the life of Jesus. We're still in the be this section of this, this teaching. And it's in these verses that Paul challenges us, and I want you to dial into this. He challenges us to grapple with the weighty reality. Think about this: that our relationships on earth are meant to mirror the relationship and the love that Jesus has for His people in the world. So the way we treat each other and the way we treat those that are not in the in the faith, Jesus says this should be a living example of what it will be like for you to be in eternity with Me. It's a lengthy description of what Jesus of how Jesus treats us. It's a, it's a set of parameters, if you will, for what healthy relationship is supposed to look like. So essentially, God desires us to treat each other in such a way that it shows to the world that th- this image of what it will be like to be in his eternal presence, what it means to be loved by Jesus, our charge here is to, in imperfect and broken ways, bring that same kingdom reality to earth. And everything we do, we established this a couple of weeks ago, that the foundation of this is that we want to glorify God, not self, in our lives. And when we make the decision to glorify God, what happens is we can't be selfish anymore because the nature of who God is is selflessness. And so it begins by making this decision, who do I live to most glorify? Is it the preservation of self, what we call self-preservation or self-preoccupation, or is it to preserve the, the name of God? The simple way to ask this question is, who am I seeking to make most famous in life, me or my Father in heaven? And obviously, the answer for a believer is my Father in heaven. And so when we make this choice to glorify God over self, we somewhat become naturally a relational agents of peace and reconciliation like Jesus. So today, I hope to show you in, a, in a, a deeper way, like so many other of the important relationships that we read about in Scripture, there's no shortage of them. Husband and wife, mother and father, you know, uh, the way we care for children as parents, the foundation upon which all Christ-honoring relationship and unity is built, key theme in this passage, is a commitment that we call covenant. And that is what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to do it by looking at how much of our understanding of relationship in our world today is actually not a covenantal type of love. It's what we would call a contractual kind of love. But what God says in these passages is that that's not the kind of love he desires us to have. He wants a covenantal love based on the way Jesus treats us. And so if you have taken our partnership class, and many of you have, some of this will not be new to you. This is a, we deal with this in an abbreviated way. All of the partners at our church have kind of studied this a little bit in the class, but today we're going to unpack it in like a full a full talk. So if you've heard this before in our partnership class, this is a day to explore this more deeply. If you've not been in our partnership class, this is a great opportunity for you to understand and hear one of the primary rhythms of what we think is important at our church. It's, it's one of the DNA threads, you might say, that Jesus has hardwired into us, how we understand, uh, preserve, and build healthy relationships. So in our culture, a great many relationships, uh, relationship issues are caused by thinking that relationship is a a contract. And I'll unpack this. Let's reread Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Here's where we see that this is not the case. When speaking about treating people, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, he says, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so we get a very clear understanding of relationship here, okay? And in the the modern world, uh, the nature of contract is is a relationship built on bargaining terms. And I want to give you a textbook definition of this, okay? Legally speaking, here's how we define a contract. And I want you to be thinking of all these things in the context of the way we treat and have been treated by other people. It's an enforceable agreement with specific terms between two or more persons or entities in which there is an obligation to do something in return for the other party, And what this means is a contract is a legal declaration where you expect another party or person to do something for you, particularly according to this definition, to provide a service for you. Somebody comes to the table and commits to do something for you, but they don't do it just to do it for you. They do it because there is some expected form of payment at the other end of that service. And so as you negotiate a contract, it's mutually understood that the health of the contract and the relationship it creates is based upon each party keeping up their end of the bargain. And I will give you the most obvious example of this. I have shared this before is we sit in a room right now that is the byproduct of contractual bargaining. The relationship we have with the movie theater, I know you guys might think that they love us so much that they let us meet here for nothing and we just show about our our leisure – to honor the English today, but that's not exactly how it works. Um, each year, right around September, we have a, a, a local rep in the Southeast District who is connected to the corporate offices of Colorado, and we get to Regal's offices. We get together, and I have to sit down with them and renegotiate the contractual relationship between what Regal Theatres and Restoration looks like, and the way this works is that we request a certain set of amenities. We decide what what wor- is working and what is not working, What our present and future needs are, Uh, things like where we meet, what access to theaters we have, where our storage space is. We work all that out. And as you know, you've been here a while, several of you. That changes. you know, For this year, we've been in this theater. The year prior, we were in the theater next to us. We have to rework that every year. And in return, they say, now pay us rent. That's the way that it works. So it's not a free or, or – I'm not saying it's like malice, but it's not a benevolent, altruistic relationship. We meet here because we pay them, and they let us meet here because we pay them, and we're thankful for that. We have wonderful relationships with our on-site management and, and the corporate offices. However, that, <clears throat> that wonderful relationship is not built – although there are deep friendships, it's not built on just friendship alone. Uh, it's, if we stop paying rent or the theater decides to no lang- longer let us meet here, then what happens is the contract is in violation and it dissolves. And consequently, so does the relationship connected to it. Our relationship here is bound by the contract. It's, it's bound by us providing a reciprocal service to the other party. And an interesting caveat – in many contracts, including ours, is that there's always, or uh, there can be, uh, cancel the contract whenever you would like with a 30 days notice option for both parties. So even though we sign annual contracts, um, if we at one point decide we don't want to meet here or they decide they don't want us to meet here, within 30 days we can liquidate the contract. And that's interesting because you go through all this legal stuff and then you sign this stuff and then it's like we're committed mostly. <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like to me uh, when I sign that paper and when they make the commitment to us. So here's the problem with this or the challenge with this. Unfortunately, this this is the way many people see and understand relationship, and I'm going to speak very particularly now to those of us who love Jesus. They see it as a commitment that is sort of a commitment, a relationship very different than what Paul is talking about here, selflessness, sacrifice, really not in it for self. That's not the way a lot of people understand their relationships. It's a relationship that they'll stay in so long as the other party is effectively meeting the needs they have in life. And when that stops, when whatever they, you know, the signed agreement or the relational expectation of what the agreement was, when it stops, many people have a hard time maintaining the relationship. This is what Paul's talking about here. Many people either terminate the relationship or in a tit-for-tat kind of way, they stop meeting the needs of the other person in the relationship. And so this is a form of relationship that says, I'm going to meet your needs. I'm willing to meet your needs so long as you meet mine. It's what we call a relational contract, or at least it's what we call it here. And it isn't entirely healthy. Uh, It's a far departure from Jesus' selfless expectation of our relationships that we read about in Philippians. And so let me give you a contrarian form of relationship, perhaps one of the most pure under heaven on earth. Um, Let's look at the kind of relationship that that parents have with their children. And many of you in this room have children. Um, I have three. And I have heard it rightfully said and I have read in a myriad of places. It's said in different ways, but nonetheless, this truth I think is very true is that having children is kind of like having your heart walking out uh, walking around outside of your chest and that's totally true it's as if they're an extension of your soul right you're happy when they're happy you grieve when they grieve uh, you're pained when they're in pain uh, you know t- uh, last week uh, Adelaide we were having some work done on our floors in our house and my daughter Adelaide ran by a bag of cracked up tile that a, a, a handyman had left in our living room and she cut her calf very badly she had 19 stitches um, and so you know, she 's five, and I watched her hit the bag and hit the ground and If you're a parent, you will know this if you 're not, you will feel this at some point when you have children. I, I looked at her leg and like my inside rumbled like I, could, I knew right away we were about to go to the hospital, but the pain is like transferable. I'm sure it hurts her physically, but there's this thing that happens in you when you see your kids and your children suffering. And, you know, thank God she's okay. She's going to have a little orzo wound. She'll probably be respected in high school for it. But right now she's a five-year-old with a pretty big cut on her leg. And so the reason this is so is because parents have this very deep and unique kind of love for their children. And if you think about the... I know there's plenty of unhealthy parenting in our world today, but if you think about parenting the way God designs it, it is a love rooted in unconditionally loving and serving kids and expecting nothing in return for it. As they get older, yes, there is a, there's a healthy kind of expectation there, but the nature of loving children from day one is that you're doing a very lot for them and you're getting nothing out of it but this relational joy. They don't, it's not a, a tit for tat. You don't put in and get out as much. So think about this kind of relationship, especially if you have children, in contrast to the contract relationship I just talked about here. Right? A good parent, a healthy parent, should never use the love they have for their children as a contractual bargaining tool. That love should be selfless and altruistic. And if you have children, although you might not have wanted to, I bet you never like bargained with your six-month-old and said, I'm going to clean your poop only if it's once a day, right? That's the way that this is going to work, and you're just going to have to suck it up the other 97 changes, especially the first like six you know, six months. You're like printing diapers in the back of your house because there's so many. We don't do that. You never looked at your 10-year-old and said, listen, um, although we have expectations in our house, our kids have to fold the laundry. They, they do it kicking and screaming. But I would never like withhold food from my children. I would never say the laundry gets folded or well, you don't eat. My wife might disagree. She's already humming, right? <clears throat> You'd never tell your 16-year-old, like, hey, we're going to go on vacation, but you cannot come unless you cut the grass. You'd never tell an 18-year-old, listen, I'm only going to help you in life's major decisions. Like, don't call me from college uh, unless you go to this college that I said and get this job or, you know, whatever that looks like. Now, hear me here. Absolutely, as parents, one of the marks of love, we've talked about love many times in this room and the different facets that it has. Love is not always a mushy emotion. A good parent will discipline a child at times for being lazy or irresponsible. That is part of what being a good parent is. And sometimes it's hard to love a child when when they are not meeting up, living up to the expectation. If we're going to be honest, as parents, I'm sure our children feel the same way at times when we as parents don't live up to their expectations. But the point of selfless relationship is that we should never use these things as a tool to barter for their love or vice versa. That's like the whole point of the Cats in the Cradle song, right? For those of you like over 30, you'll get it. The point is that it's a dysfunctional relationship because it's, the relationship is built on getting something from somebody. And that's why it's such a sour form of relationship. So bargaining for love or bargaining for relationship is not the way of God. And that's because the selfless, when it comes to parents especially, the selfless servant love a parent has for a child, over time something neat happens. Um, when, When the cylinders are firing properly, it fosters a very deep type of love that causes you to joyfully and unconditionally make greater sacrifice for your kids. The more you live for another person, the more you tend to live for them, the deeper the level of love goes. That's why these most primary relationships in life, husband and wife, you know, mom and son, father and daughter, all these relationships, when they're working properly, the mutual tension and the selflessness is what makes the bind so strong. So the deep nature of love that comes from giving yourself away to your children on a daily basis, uh, not, from, not from demanding love for them, it's a different way of loving. One is a covenant, one is a contract, we will talk about covenant in a minute. In, in many cases, that selfless love causes a child to reciprocate it to their parents over time. They might not get it through their teens, but, but at some point the bulb kind of pops in the head. And I know even with my parents, I've learned to appreciate them in ways that I just cognitively and emotionally I could not appreciate them when I was in my teens. It changes when you, when you then can recognize that. And that's a pretty thing. It's a beautiful thing. That said, no one in his or her right mind would ever think of raising a kid under a contractual type of love. Now, hear me. I'm not saying people don't do this. I'm just saying if you're in your right state of mind and heart, you wouldn't do this. So when it's outside this parameter, we identify a relational foul. And the reason this is is because you know it's certain to undermine the stability and health of the relationship. On the contrary, the more we love and serve our children or people that we care for, even when it is difficult and even at our own expense, the more we come to love them and somewhat ironically desire to love and serve them in more significant ways. And the great tragedy in this, I use these very you know, explicit examples, the business world and, and parenting because they're just very common. The great tragedy in this is that many people, they have this love down pat when it comes to their children, but not at all when it comes to their other relationships. So they like nail this when it is mom and dad to kid, but when it's, when it's peripheral relationships, it might not necessarily be as, as pure. And this happens in large part when we practice this parenting love we're talking about in reverse, the, the, the other, uh, with the other people that God places in our life. Because remember, relationship far exceeds those boundaries. It includes them, but it's also far broader than that. And this type of relationship with people tends to look like this. Unlike the way we love our children, when they hurt, we hurt, when they suffer, we suffer, when, when they're happy, we're happy. Unlike that, sometimes we say to our friends, our family, even our spouses, look, if you love me first, then I'm going to love you back. That's the way this is going to work. Uh, if you serve me first, then I'm going to serve you back. And like, I know communication is pretty bad right now, but the way it's going to work is uh, if you talk to me first, then I'll, I'll work on being a better communicator with you or your peers, you know, uh, uh, you, you might have a, an accountability group or friends in a community group or whatever. You say something like this, like, listen, I'm going to listen to you first, but it's going to be based on you. I'm going to listen to you, but it's going to be based on you listening to me first. A very big one. Jesus talks very concretely about this. Like, like, I know you've wronged me, right? But the truth is that I am willing to forgive you, but you have to, you have to apologize. In other words, you got to make it right with me first before I make it right with you. These are all examples. It's a short list of what a contractual relationship looks like. And that type of relationship is destructive. Let me give you just a very honest example. Look at forgiveness. There's a reason why Jesus tells us to forgive. And there's a difference between forgiving a person, but also I say forgiving but not forgetting. If somebody has perpetually wronged you, it is possible to forgive them, to no longer bear the yoke of that burden, but also to, in wisdom, no longer function in a way that you're put in a place to be taken advantage of or abused. But I will tell you, if you have ever been wronged by somebody, and I know just about every one of you have, what likely happens is the party who does the wronging, they are sleeping more soundly than you are about the wrong. And so what happens is, is you're, you're torn up about it and aggravated about it, and they don't care. And the reason why Jesus says forgive is because it's like you're still in bondage to the foul. That's what happens. And so contractual relationship, it is a destabilizer of relationship. It is destructive because it produces the exact opposite type of love Paul talks about and Jesus wants us to have in all of our relationships. And what I would say is that it mainly produces no love. That's where that ends up. Without forgiveness, eventually you get bitter. There's no love in that. With a lack of communication, eventually relationships get numb. There's, there's no love in that. When you demand from your children something for, for you to love them, then what happens is, is over time they pick up on that. And when they can make their own cognitive choices, there's no love there. It's a cognitive relationship, a contractual relationship. It just isn't there. They've learned to move on and not be abused. So what this produces, contractual relationship, over the lifetime of a relationship is the hardening of a heart. Because each time you do the whole, you know, you do for me first expectation thing, what happens is you build the metaphorical equivalent of putting another brick on a relational wall that you are building around your heart. It starts walling people off. And acting like this towards another person doesn't value them. It actually undermines their worth And it's going to escalate the tension in you in any relationship. And so while contractual bargaining sounds very clean and linear at a table when we're signing a a theater negotiation or, Lord willing, one day if God ever moves us into a more permanent property, which we're all playing about, there's a lot of contract healthily necessary there. It works well in the business world, but you need to know it will probably ruin your relationships. You can't transfer that principle apple for apple. And this is because from God's vantage point, it violates the way God designs us to be in relationship with other people. No person with a heart beating in their chest will be able to put up with that tit-for-tat kind of relationship forever. The longer it endures, the harder it makes a person, to the point where they either get relationally numb or they just flat-out leave. This I'll-do-for-you behavior, if you do for me first, it knows no boundaries. And the reason why Paul talks about it here is because it is a direct threat to Jesus' unity, which is the charge Paul has given us in this first part of Philippians. Jesus' joy is in you, he says, now essentially defend it, like... Be prepared to guard it. He's saying the unity God has put in you, the preservation of God's grace in your life, these things are going to be a direct threat to it. Contractual relationship is a threat to unity. And this attitude will likely spill over into the way you understand your relationship with the church. In the way you treat your friends and the way you interact with everyone, it can even be seen in some unhealthy parenting paradigms where unfortunately, a parent does trade their love for a child, uh, or uh, you know they 're only going to love the kid if they do what they ask of them, or on the reverse, where children do this to the parents, they only love the mom or dad because they need to get something from them. This is a problem, and so in this chapter, Paul identifies the we might almost say the foundational rule of engagement that God lays out for all of our relationships. It's, it's not built in this contractual bargaining. It's actually not built on a, an equal giving to get. It's not about giving love away and serving others only when you know you're going to get something out of it. Frankly, this is going to be hard to chew on for some of us. It's about giving love away, period, even when there is a high risk that you might receive nothing in return. The case Paul argued for us here is it's about seeing and treating others like Jesus has treated you and I. There is no tit-for-tat for with him. And this leads me to the second truth that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, We've talked about the problems of contractual relationship. God's desire for our relationships is that we build them on the foundation of a covenantal love. And this is how we understand the community of our, our church here. So I want to reread Philippians 2, 3 through 5, and we'll sharply contrast contractual relationship with covenantal relationship. Again, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's probably where the bulk of the contractual stuff is going to fall under. He says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that is obviously how we, be, we, we lose ourselves. We find ourselves by losing ourselves. And what we have to pick up is the, is the mind of Jesus. So this is how we become more like Christ. We embrace the rhythms of who he is, you know, heart, soul, and mind so one of the rhythms of Jesus is, is kind of—I'll articulate it this way—is that God's plan for all healthy relationship, including the one he has with us, is built on us desiring to be something for another person. That is the origin of God's love for us. It isn't built on us doing something for him. It is built on him doing something for us. And this relational paradigm— it's, it's replete throughout the whole scripture and how we treat each other. Most clearly seen, I've preached whole sermons on this, we'll just touch on it quickly today, on the one, another, one another's in the scripture. The long list of verses that remind us that, that Christian relationship is not defined by asking how your brothers and sisters in Christ can serve you, but how you can serve them. It's all about being, being something for one another. And if you think about it, if everybody's doing that, then all the needs get met in a pretty selfless way. The problem is when we're not thinking about that. Those one another's teach us that the essence of all relationship in the Christian faith is not built on asking what somebody can do for you, but rather what you can be for them in Jesus. Right? That's the point of the cross. And nowhere is this beautiful gospel truth so pointedly displayed than in the covenantal love that uh, God, God, God calls us to have. We kind of are mirror imaging the kind of love Jesus has for us on the cross. What Jesus does for us on the cross is, is the root of how we relate or should be relating to other and people. So deeply embedded in the idea of covenant is the promise to be something for another person. In other words, the kind of relationship Paul speaks about in Philippians, it's not a mere trading of services. It's a heart-deep pledge to be something for another person, no matter what the other person is doing to you. That's what the covenant says. In the Bible, there's a pretty clear pattern of what a relational covenant looks like. In fact, we divide the scripture up uh, 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 under these covenantal headings. This is how we interpret the whole plan of God in the Bible. And there are several covenants. We have the one between God and Abraham, God and Noah, and the one we're under now is Jesus and us. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the New Testament is actually a new covenant. That's the literal name for what we're functioning under. It's a set of terms that Jesus set up for us to live under until he comes back. And then that, we'll have a whole new epoch when that happens. But for right now, we're under the new covenant. So the, there's an identifiable pattern that goes like this in Scripture when it, when it talked about covenant. And you can actually see this in the modern world today. Um, First, there are two parties or people that are introduced. That's step one of the covenant. Then there's kind of a, a st- the stipulation of the covenants, of the covenant is defined, like what the terms are. And then there's a reminder of, of what happens if you, uh, b- blessings and curses, literally is how the Old Testament describes it, of what happens when you, uh, when you, when you keep the covenant or transgress it, there's like blessing to keep it and, and potential disaster when you don't. And then lastly, there's some public display or vow meant to symbolize the ratification of the covenant. And so in the Old Testament, <clears throat> where covenant is far more explicit, uh, there are radically different cultural expressions of what, what this public display of covenant looks like. The most common, and perhaps the foundational one that sets the whole Bible in motion is that it's common to ratify a covenant by, by cutting an animal in half and then walking through it to signify you'd rather be as dead as the animal than to break the covenant you've made with another person. And I love that stuff because it's like the biblical equivalent of watching The Godfather to me. I mean it is like straight-up uh, Jewish mafia stuff, and I think our modern culture could, could use some of that. Like it, there's really like something serious about the covenant uh, and and the fact that you don't have to do it, like you don't have to make it. Jesus didn't have to do anything, but he does. But when you make the covenant, when you ratify it, there's a level of accountability to it that these things communicate seriousness. And, you know, I've tried many times since obviously the Christian worldview is that marriage is a, a covenant, an institution from God. I, I've tried many times with helping a couple plan their wedding to go for a more Old Testament feel to it, like like maybe cutting a cow in half and having them walk between the carcass. I think it would be great. But uh, for some reason, the women are always like, I got the whole light white dress thing and – I'm going to stick with the rings. And I mean, we could even provide a dry cleaner for them, but they just don't want to do that. They want to keep it clean with this thing. So, right. But the principle is the same, right? You can ratify a covenant. It can look very different how you ratify it. But the essence of what you ratify does not change. In both Testaments and culminating in Jesus's death on the cross is a deep seated commitment to be something for another person. And the cross, our covenant, the one we function under now is the place we're going to kind of wrap up today. The cross makes it very plain to us, this reality, that Jesus comes to earth and he does not. He's, he's laying out a new, a, a new mantra for a kingdom for sure. But the terms for giving his life for us, they don't require anything from us. This is why we call it grace. He doesn't go to the cross expecting. He goes to the cross knowing, think about this, knowing that a vast majority of our world will reject him and that even those who follow him, all of us at times still reject him. He knows that. He goes to the cross saying, I, I'm, I'm going to love you, knowing that you're not always going to reciprocate this towards me. He promises to never leave or forsake us, knowing that there are tons of times in our lives, both big and small, where we leave and forsake him. And I could spend the rest of the morning... Literally identifying the commitments that Jesus makes to us that we cannot reciprocate back to him. In pieces and particles, we can live up to this. But we can never fully commit to the covenant the way Jesus has committed to it for us. And that's why we are a church based on grace. We don't believe you can earn it. We believe Jesus has established it for us. And we want to live in that freedom. But that freedom comes. I want you to think about this now. That comes because we don't see the cross as contract. We see the cross as covenant. And the the grace, if you have experienced the grace of Jesus, I want you to transfer that to peer relationships. If you apply contract to the cross, you get moralism and legalism and a bunch of other isms that push us away from the one who loves us. The same is true in our peer relationships. When we see relationship as contract, we're likely to embrace a form of contract that is unhealthy, a relational contract that's unhealthy. The type of love that God wants all of our relationships to function under is that we keep our promises to another person no matter what the other party is doing. In the same way, God always keeps his promises with us. That doesn't mean we're not wise in this. We're going to actually talk about this next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the challenges to this. Because some of you might be asking, well, what happens when I'm, I'm really keeping my covenant to somebody and they're not keeping it to me? We're going to get to that next week, but I wanted some extra time to talk about that. But today, I want to establish the, the foundation. Uh, this covenantal reality can be most clearly seen in the nature of a wedding vow. I want to end here because I think this is the thing that's probably most common in our minds. So think about if you are married or you've seen a marriage, think about what is said when a husband and wife recite their vows to each other. They say things like, I promise to love you, cherish you, uh, to be there for you, to have and to hold you through good times and bad and sickness and in health, whether we have money or not, car or not, health or whatever, whatever it is. The point of that is that each participant uh, in the marital covenant makes that pledge to one another and then publicly ratifies it with those rings. It's the same principle that we read about in the Bible. Their two parties are introduced, there's terms that are given, they ratify it with the rings, they do it in front of a bunch of people. And the point of the vow is that it's a reminder that, that you're asking nothing of your spouse in the marriage. The point of a vow is not saying, you will cherish me no matter what I say, and love me even if we don't have a house. That's not, what go, that's not what's happening. Each person is committing to be something for the other person in the event that they are not being something for the other person. We make these vows publicly because they're hard to keep. And they need to be fleshed out amongst other people doing it in the church uh, those with more life experience. At times, uh, the reason why we believe marriage is an institution, God ordained, it's, it's because sometimes we actually have to be here for each other in it when life does get hard. There's a, a mutual grace-based accountability to help us be those things when we cannot. Covenantal love is probably, I think anyways, most explicitly seen in marriage, but it is also, according to passages of scripture like this, expected in our relationships with other people. Obviously not to the same degree but nonetheless, Jesus says we should be living with the same idea. In, in, uh, in our lives with the people that God has placed in our lives. It shouldn't be like, hey, you, you, there's a foul here, I'm out, or I'm so frustrated with you, I'm over. We, we are not supposed to be doing that in our marriages. There's a different uh, bullseye we're striving for. And the same is true with relationship. This is what we call journey in the Christian faith. It's, it's us being willing to be there for each other when it actually isn't easy. And those of you that have been cared for during a season of life that has been challenging by other people who love God, you know that that's a significant part of who you are now. It changes you. You realize there's a love for you when there isn't necessarily even a a love for self. That's not easy to do. It can be very hard. Um, But I will tell you again that sometimes the hardest things that God calls us to do, they're the most valuable things. Because in Scripture it's clear, if you strive to have this kind of selfless and sacrificial love, which asks for nothing in return, in the same way a parent loves a child— over time, God begins to produce a deep and meaningful love in those relationships. Um, and he's even able to grant you peace. This is a key thing to hear. We'll unpack it next week. But he can even grant you peace in the ability to love another person when they refuse to love you. That, that's the reality of it. You can learn to love selflessly where your love and care for a person is not dependent on the way they treat you. He's able to help you forgive others when they treat you poorly. That's why this passage is not just a proactive thing to do. It certainly is that. It's rooted in the identity of Jesus. There's a tangible do that comes out of it. Who is God? Who am I? Right. But this teaching is also a safeguard for us and for our hearts. There's a protection God gives us here. In the likely, hear me, likely. I'm not saying unlikely. In the likely event that you are mistreated in a relationship by another person, and in the likely event that you and I mistreat somebody else in another relationship, right? Let's be honest, that it happens to us, and sometimes with the greatest hearts, we do it to other people. That is going to happen. When that stuff is happening, this becomes a protection for our heart. It's a protection for us to know we're doing it, and it's a protection for us to, to function in the joy of Jesus when it's happening to us, to not let that person take our joy. This teaching is a safeguard, but it's For all this to happen, or for us to begin living in the experience of the promise, you have to begin training your heart and mind right now to know that covenantal love is a wholesale pledge to be something for somebody else. It is not a bargaining tool to be used to get something from them. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a love rooted in continuing to love when it isn't easy or convenient even when it's not reciprocated, this is the battle cry of modern relationship. I'll do it when it's easy. And it pains me to see it sometimes. And I'm guilty of it at times. We all are. But the truth here is that we live for a different kingdom. And so we shouldn't settle for this stuff when we sense it. Because this is real love. It is a love that transcends the often erratic nature of feelings or emotions. Feelings and emotions matter. But sometimes our feelings and emotions, they push us into contract. It is a love that loves when it's hard. It's a love that chooses to lay aside preference, personal preference, agenda, motives, traditions, all the things that divide the unity of Jesus. What Paul is saying is that, listen, there's a better way. Live for the betterment of another person. Don't live to exclude them. It is a love defined by meeting the needs of another, even when they're not meeting yours. And in the same way a parent cares for their child, uh, that's the, the idea here. Think about that. Selfless love for the kid. If you're married, that is at the heart of what you said when you ratified a vow to your spouse. That's what you committed to. And before God and each other, let's kind of move down the ladder here. Before God and each other, we should be striving to keep those vows in every relationship we have, seeking the wise counsel of others when we realize that we cannot or no longer want to in a relationship that we have. Because remember, our relationships are meant to reveal the kind of relationship and love Jesus has for us in the church, the love that Jesus has for the world. And that really matters in a body like ours. I say this, and I've said it before, there is no relational drama here. There is great unity in love, and God blesses that. But the future of our church and our relationships, the health of them, are built on this. We've built our future on this. This is what we said, if we grow, when we grow, and the way God grows us, we don't want it to be based and rooted in gimmick. We want it to be on this type of pure altruistic love. Because that is a love that when it roots into your heart, it's it's the fingertips of Jesus who's grabbed a person. That's our DNA. And so I say this, and we spend a little extra time in Philippians too, because I want to challenge you all to do your best, to continue to do your best, to walk worthy of this high calling and responsibility. It isn't just the way we get along with people. It is a re- it's a reflection of who Jesus is in us. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself a, a, a primary question. How have you understood relationship in your life? You've had many, I'm sure, in all different ways. How have you entered this room understanding relationship? Do you see relationship as something you put into to get something out of? Do you only give when it's time to get? Or do you understand relationship the way that Jesus does? Do you see that you are called to treat others sacrificially when there is no return? You are called to love those who are different from you. You are called to serve those. I'm, I, you know, In my talk here, I re- when there's a high possibility of it not being reciprocated, but I think it's fair to say you are called to love people when you know it will not be reciprocated. That happens a lot. You can't say, nope, I ain't going to get back, I'm not going to do it. Because if that's the case, there is no cross, there is no redemption, there is no grace. That's not the motivation of Jesus' covenant with us. So living in the latter heart attitude, it connects you to Jesus in an amazing way. There is a point in Philippians where we will talk about how uh, Paul says to suffer, right? You don't hear this a lot today, but to suffer is one of the greatest ways that you can identify with the person and the nature of who Jesus is. This is another way. When you live in the covenant, when you love like Jesus did, you start to sense and feel like Jesus did. He's in you right now, whether you are aware of it or not. It's like you activate receptors that were no longer there. When you love and it's not reciprocated, or when you love and it is reciprocated, when you are, you know, transgressed or wounded, you start to sense and see things the way Jesus does. You bear the emotion he has. You feel the things that he does. And perhaps as great is that you begin to see the world as he does. So this morning, ask yourself, is contract worth it? No, it makes you more like you, right? It, it, it's finding ourselves more in ourselves and less in Jesus. But to see love and relationship as covenant, it's another way that we lose ourselves by embracing the mind and the heart of Christ. So ask yourself this morning, when it comes to treating others as Jesus has treated you, what is Jesus saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? What is your, your spiritual meditation point and your action step as you leave this room and and put this into praxis this week. Pray with me.